Good morning. We need good words for today, and Ephesians has them for us. And, and there we find a manifesto. Do you like that word? It's a good word to say. Say manifesto. Okay, Jesus' manifesto for the church is that his followers become imitators of God. So Paul wrote in his letters, letter to the Ephesian church, he wrote about the change that must happen when we have seen Jesus Christ and we realize that he is in fact God. Now I want to set this up to you, so I'm going to read this. Some of the words will be on the screen. This is just a setup into getting to what we want to talk about today. But Paul said this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Those words come from Ephesians 4, 17 to 24, and this whole book of Ephesians comes to make this one point that we'll be getting to a little bit later on in this sermon. So as we see these words here, we put on this new self because we intend to imitate God. We don't do it to give ourselves a a false sense of religious superiority, but we do this as part of God's plan to reveal himself to cities, cities like Jerusalem and Ephesus and Toronto and even Barrie. So I should tell you that Ephesus, at the time of this writing, it was a pretty big deal. It was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was about the fourth most important city. It had 500,000 people, which if you scale it up today, that's a city of about 11 to 12 million people, which is twice the population in the GTA, um, kind of like a, a Chinese Shenzhen city. So it was huge. I already told you it was the fourth most important in the, in the Roman Empire. And it had this place called the, the Temple of Artemis, which was a, which is a symbol to their idolatrous culture. And that temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So it was a big deal. And Paul, through Jesus, as his ministry for Christ, he established the church there, and it was important to him. We hear about this church often, and he left Timothy there to take care of it. And he he wanted that city to see the power of Jesus' name, that it could change people's lives by helping them get untangled from the corruption of sinfulness. So, I say this. I think this is... God's plan to remind us that cities need churches. Cities need churches because churches are the local institution dedicated and supernaturally empowered to address the underlying symptom of the human condition, which is what? Sin. Yes, you're with me this morning. The larger a city gets, the more it seems that people can experience the extremes of of sin and all its temporary pleasures and with all the corruption that comes along with it for the soul, whether it's slow or we're fast. Listen, sin erodes the image of God that we were all created with. It takes away the divine nature and within the, within the population of a community that's committed to practicing the sins centered around its idols. So Jesus, our leader in all this, he founded his first church in a city called Jerusalem. And he told his disciples, it's there that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in the city. 
And then he said other things to those disciples, saying this, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then later, even more profoundly said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest, or I will show myself to him. And I, I tell you these verses because you might say to me, as Pastor Roger says to me when I said, we're going to do this imitators of God thing. He says, well, how do you see, how do I imitate a God who I can't see? And I said right away, well, we don't have to imitate the God we can't see. We can imitate Jesus who we have seen. So I don't want any of you to say, well, this is just some, some type of metaphorical com- construct that we want to talk about here. We're talking about a church that looks like Christ, and as we look like Christ, we begin to look like God. So all of this background sets us up to understand Paul's words in our passage today. So this is where we want to be, Ephesians chapter 5. We've got a good section of scripture to go through today. Would you follow along with me as I read it? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Now I'm going to tell you something because I know we're still getting to know each other. I've been here almost four years. But I walk around like this on the stage for a lot of reasons. One, I was an athlete long before I ever thought I'd be a preacher. And so I have all this nervous energy to dispel. But mostly, I used to teach in a high school class that used to be basically outside the doors of the main auditorium, and we had to compete with noise, we had to compete with singing, we had to compete with like the Annas and the Jordans singing, and their students would not pay attention. So if I just stood there still, reading the scriptures, they would fall asleep. But if I moved around, and believe me, if I was on the same level as you, I would even get up and down the rows. But I do that because I don't want anybody to fall asleep while we're reading the Word of God, okay? So I will trust you guys to stay awake. Let's look at this together. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, no crude joke, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You still with me? Okay. This is just one big idea here. Look carefully then. How you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for paying attention to it. So we want to look at these words today. And I know there's a good section there, and I wanted to put it all in front of you, because it needs to be in our minds as we talk about this concept of imitating God. 
It's we, we do this out of reverence for the power of Jesus' name, for the fact that we've come to him and he's changed us and he's allowed us to become sons and daughters, children of the living God. And so we want to grow up to imitate our Heavenly Father. Let me just pray and ask the Lord to help us with that. Father, we, we pray that we would hear your word. We pray that it would enter our hearts, that it would enter our minds, it would cause us to change and that it would allow us to be your people right here in this city, right here in this region, so that from this place, your spirit could work and transform the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. So you ready to go? All right. Well, the power in Jesus' name, then, is revealed to a city when the church imitates God first by walking in love. Walking in love. As beloved children of God, we should now want to imitate our spiritual father. So what does imitation of our spiritual father look like then? It looks like love, which we should get, but it looks, actually looks like love expressed best in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. That's why the first description of imitating God says, and walk in love. You've seen that, we read it. Verse 2, and walk in love. So our love this love that we have, this love that we're going to demonstrate and imitate of God, it, it must translate into decidedly, decidedly sacrificial actions for each other and for the mission of Jesus Christ. Christ is the highest example of this love. And it says we are supposed to love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So you might think a lot of things about love today. Perhaps you got engaged this week, as some people in this church did. And, and love is a certain picture, but that's not the love that we're talking about here. We're talking about a sacrificial love. It's not mushy talk. It's not hugs and holding hands and, and swaying to the music. There's a time for all of that. But our love must be more fierce than emotional. It's a love that's going to be inconvenient at times. Otherwise, it can't be sacrificial. If it's just easy to do it, if it just feels good to do it, we're not talking about what Jesus did because Jesus' love took him to the cross. Jesus' love cost him something. But I want you to notice first that Jesus' love, he gave us a fragrance with it. He gave a sacrificial love that was a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, it says. So as we set up to this passage and we think about walking in love, we're thinking about sacrificing. We're thinking about a love that is inconvenient to show. We're thinking about a love that is far more fierce than it is emotional. And I want to ask you about the way you love your Christian brothers and sisters. What does that smell like? Does it have a fragrance to it? Is there something about the way you serve and, and love and, and hang out with other people that is pleasing in any way? Or does it stink? Does it stink to serve beside you because you complain? Or because you simply won't work hard? You ever been with one of those people? You get assigned to a job, it's group work, and, and you realize you're going to be the one carrying the load? That, that, that person stinks to work with. right? Or, or you're working with someone and all they can do is just complain. It's hard work anyways, but they just make it worse by talking about how, much, how uncomfortable it is. Oh, it's so hot in here. Oh, these people don't care about us. They just go on and on and on. That is not a pleasing aroma. That is not love. That is not sacrifice. That is, that is something different. 
This whole imagery of aroma goes back to the idea of laying a sacrifice on the altar so that the scent of that would waft up to God and he'd say, I'm pleased with what my people are doing. And we get to do that not through sacrificing meat and, and grains and, 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 and um, spices, but we get to do that by how we serve each other. So maybe you struggle at times with the scent of your own bad attitude when it comes to serving. But there's good news because, because it's good news for all of us. Jesus is helping us with that, isn't he? I, I'm, I'm a better servant than I was years ago, I hope. I, I hope I complain less. I hope, I hope I work harder. I hope that's the case too. The Spirit of God is teaching us to love like Jesus did, to sacrifice ourselves in, in ways that please God. And Jesus' cross is our teacher. Jesus said, if anybody would come after me, he must pick up his cross and follow me. Why is that important for us to think about? Well, Jesus' cross was a sign that he was willing to be set apart, set aside by the city so that he could serve the church. We, we wear crosses around our necks sometimes or we put them on our bodies as tattoos now or we decorate it with them in our houses. But when Jesus carried his cross, he was not thinking of some type of decoration or style. It was something of shame. And he, he picked it up and it set him apart from the city as he walked through the streets. People recognized that that man is set apart from us. We, we are about to kill this guy for what he's doing. And it set him apart. And, and so when we see the cross as our teacher, we have to realize that that it's supposed to set us apart from the city too. And when I think about that, one of the ways that we can pick up our cross is that we can volunteer, we can serve the church, or we can serve the mission of the church wherever we are. That's the way that we can pick up our cross. And we serve in ways, not that the city respects, there's lots of people in our city that volunteer, but when we're doing this Jesus way, we do it in a way that the city might reject, or scorn, or not understand, because you fiercely love your church and your church family, and you fiercely have, and you have a deep reverence, sorry, for the, for the things of Jesus Christ. So the, the things that you might end up doing for a church on a weekend, giving up your wonderful Sunday morning, spending four or five or six hours at a church, or on a day like today, maybe spending 12 hours at a church to make sure that other people are comforted and cared for. Or maybe at the end of the year, it's when people realize, what did you do with your money this year? Well, I gave it to a church. I gave it towards mission. I gave it to some kids over in Africa. I've done all this stuff with my money. And people are saying, why don't you spend any more on yourselves? We don't understand that. And they scorn it. They, 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 They ridicule you. That's picking up your cross as a volunteer. And listen, I don't say this to make anybody feel guilty. I know that this attitude shows up in many of the, of the long hours and many of the extra dollars and, and, and investments that you have made here. And we're so grateful for that. But I need to say this. We need more of both. We need people to be willing to pick up their crosses. We need people to love sacrificially. We need people to, to love in a pleasing way if we continue to imitate God and, and build this church and have a witness for him in this city. So that's the first way we can imitate God for our city, by walking in love. The second way is this. The power in Jesus' name is revealed to a city when the church imitates God by walking in light. And by far, this is the longer section of Scripture that we're dealing with today. And I read it at the beginning because I can't scan through the whole thing there, but keep your eyes between verses 3 and 14. 
And before we get into the specifics of what's there, uh, let's just observe together that imitation of God looks like the church remaining holy, remaining set apart in situations of moral impurity. That's why we get Paul saying, walk, walk as children of the light in situations of darkness. This is about our morality. This is about how we live our lives. This is about Christian lifestyle. And it's the power of Christ that makes us holy and also restores in us at the same time a desire to be holy. And so what we might find as you read this and you think about your own life that Paul has set for us a, a very high standard, a, a kind of a, a bar that's too high to raise. And you think, well, maybe I just won't really pay attention here because that's not realistic for us. And we, we understand that Paul doesn't want us to just think of sinning less, but he wants us to have the goal that, um, that we're not even sinning in the way that the city sins in its extremes. That those things that are out there that are evil and wicked, that they must not even be named among you. We don't get to relax this standard. It's one of my pet peeves about my Christian relationships. And, and I say this not, not to, to stand apart from you, but to, to say this as someone who's always wanted to stand with the church. I was, I was in my mind, as a grade 8 student, as a grade 9 student, I was a bad person. I, I was trying to be in my city living the way people in the city lived. And I met Christians, and they lived different. And I wanted to walk with them in the way they walked. And I wanted to be surrounded by people that would hold up a standard and hold me to it. And I loved that. As a, as a young teenager, but I found that as, as we get older and we, we live a little bit longer and we realize we don't walk perfectly, we tend to relax the standard on our morality. And we just learn as a fellowship to, to just allow things to creep in and curl the ed- edges of, of what that would look like. And we're not supposed to do it, but we do this. And it reminds me of, of when I used to play volleyball and, and you have a team and not everybody can, can play the same way. So what you end up doing when you realize some people can't jump or they can't serve, you just kind of pull the net down to let the ball go over. You've been in a volleyball game like that? And just to keep the game going, you're just like, pull the net down, the ball goes over. I didn't see anything. I, no, no, no. It's, it's fine. We just want to play. That's all. We just want to play. We just want to have fun, right? We're not, nobody's serious about volleyball here, right? So let's lower the nets. So, you know, we do that instead of believing that we can learn to jump higher. Sadly, we aren't always living out of the power of God in this, and and we can't imitate light, his light, without being plugged into his power. So I'm encouraging us not to lower the nets, but to keep the standard high and let God help us come, come up to that. Because imitating God in the city requires that we clarify morality. We have to do this for people that are living in darkness and confused about sin. Look at uh, verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. Because the language here is meant to move us and get us going. The two important statements, I think, of this passage are, are at the beginning, 5-1, therefore, be, therefore be imitators of God, and then verse 7, therefore do not become partners with them. This word partners, the last time I talked about partners, it was a different word. It was about people who, who take a share of something. But this time it's the, the word, the Greek word here is about a symmetry or, or similarity. And it's in this sense, we're, we're not supposed to have any, anything that's similar about us with this culture that's different. So therefore do not become partakes with them. For at one time you were darkness and now you were light in the Lord. 
Paul says that there's not to be any type of symmetry between their, the lifestyles of the sons of disobedient and the children of the light. It's one way of life versus the other. Like light opposes the darkness, the church is supposed to oppose the wicked culture in the city. These lifestyles are opposed to each other, so we cannot, we dare not relax the standard to the point that what we do in righteousness looks like what people do in disobedience. If we claim that, that we're different, but we live the same way as them, we can't honor God, we can't be imitating Him at the same time. So moral clarification requires that the children of light stop playing games, stop playing sinful games with the sons of disobedience. So what are we going to try to, to stop doing as an uncommon community then? And what, what are the things that we want to promote within the ranks of calling ourselves a church? We, we've set ourselves apart for a reason, and part of it is, is that we represent God by living a certain kind of way. And so Paul spends some of his time in this manifesto outlining some of the things that he says, these are the extremes that we got to stay, stay away from, and here are the ideals that we want to push ourselves towards. And, and they go by so quickly, so I've listed them here so we can see them, and, and you'll see them on the screen. Let's just look at, at things that we shouldn't have, things that there should be none of in our church. Let there be no immorality or impurity or covetousness. And the word that started all this was, this was in our sexual lives. This was in our, in our way of, of going about experiencing that which God has created for good and then taking it for something that's a commodity or for pleasure that we might express ourselves as in, in these power plays or, or just out of greed it even used the word there. Our lust out of control. And there's no doubt in my mind that in, in, in some of our biggest cities around the world that some people are there and they're engaged in these things. Immorality, impurity, covetousness, you can put them all up there. Paul said it was idolatry. It was a lifestyle where, where your pleasure or, 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 or something besides God is sitting on the throne of your life and it's, it's wreaking havoc. In the, in the sexual intimacy between people in a city. And then there's another group of things, filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking. And even along with that, deception of the church with empty words. A different group of, of sins, all to do with of the way people talk with each other, but it doesn't take very long to be in a city before you can get someone who will share with you a choice word. The other day, at, um, at Essa and, um, and uh, Bradford, I, I got distracted. And I stopped at the stoplight, and I was thinking, just leaving church, so I was probably thinking about something that happened here, and I was supposed to turn left, and I, I parked, basically, in the center of the road because I didn't move, right? And my neighbor, somebody I'd never met before, had something he wanted to bless me with. <laughs> he, he, he said a word over me, and I haven't forgot it yet. If I had been driving a truck, it would have been more appropriate because it sounded a lot like that. Um, but uh, he, had, he had something he needed to say to me, and it was important for him, right? I, I'm just, you know, I'm happy that I don't get those kind of greetings when I come to church. And if you have any of my volunteers ever greeting you in any type of way like that, they will be removed instantly because we're, we're supposed to be different from that. But, but we've, we've come into a city where we relax the standards. You, you, you know there are parts within our culture where, where the language has just suffered, 
where people learn to talk to each other. They don't even think about it. I, I, work, I work and still love to be around teenagers, but, but uh, I, I listen to them and, and the, 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 the lack of respect in their conversations for each other just appalls me. I'm like, are you guys friends? Because like, that's the way you talk to each other as friends. It's, it's, it's different for me. Or if I get to the, I'm a pastor, so once people know that, they always change the way they talk. But before they know, sometimes they talk freely. And it's amazing what you can hear. But the, the thing that might be most important to us is deception of the church with the empty words. Things that people teach that just lead us the wrong way. Particularly when people begin to tell the church that all these things are okay. Maybe in the name of, but we're witnessing to people. We're seeing more people come to church this way. We're relaxing the standards and we're opening the doors and we're filling the seats and people are coming and they're hearing the gospel. So what? They're not seeing God. Two more on that list. Let there be no unfruitful works of darkness and and with that, the shameful secrets that come from there. And in this, my heart breaks for, for people that could be in a room. And you come and, and you hear us say at the end of church, well, come up here, you can pray for whatever's on your heart. And you're thinking, I would, but I could never, never take from my heart and tell you exactly the kinds of things I've been involved because the shame around that is just too great. And so you have to come to church and you have to live with a secret. And it kills you. It kills your fellowship because you can't get past that thing. So Paul tells us these things in his manifesto because he doesn't want that for us. On the other side, he wants these kind of things. And, and they're less specific, but it's more of this attitude, more of these ideals that we need to strive for. So he says, let there be, because he's called out these bad things, appropriate intimacy would be the way I'd, I'd group those things, the alternate to sexual immorality and impurity and, and greediness and sex. Let there be appropriate intimacy. And let me remind you, if you're someone here who's living and, and celebrating monogamy in your marriage, or you're living and you're, 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 you're practicing virginity and chastity, those are wonderful things. I know the city would tell you completely differently. But those are wonderful things that, that, that show decency and honor and, 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 a, and a respect for what God has created. And don't give that up. Let there be thanksgiving in your speech. Let there be all that is good and right and true. Let there be discernment of what pleases the Lord. That's what we're doing this morning. We're working together to try to understand, to discern. These are, these are active words that we engage in to, to begin to understand what is, is it that God wants us to do. Let there be exposure of the works of darkness rather than harboring them in, inside the church. Let there even be things like these great hopes of rising from the dead and the idea of Christ shining on us. Those are words that come right from a, a hymn that has been quoted in the middle of this passage right around verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So it sets a standard for us, a difference. Sons of disobedience, children of light, things that we should be heading towards, things that we should be running away from. And we're supposed to be active in this. Exposing what is dark implies activity rather than passivity in moral conversations outside of the church. Maybe you've tried, maybe you've waded into a conversation and realized nobody's interested in hearing from you, church person, about what God wants. And they just rather live in their lifestyle. But we can't, we can't do that. That's not imitating God. We can't sit there in the neutral zone and hope to accomplish God's will together. We can't practice this kind of symmetry 
with the world on these things. There's a quote from a person named Edmund Burke that says, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. You've heard this? So I think about this. How much worse if we as the good men and good women emulate evil behavior instead of standing against it? It's one thing to stand passively away and let something happen, but it's another thing to go and do the same things that we're supposed to be condemning. That helps no one. It helps no one. So remember, as we try to stand against evil, as we try to be light, remember that it's not us who defeats evil. God does that. That's his work. And we can't just change our minds about sinning. We can't just wake up one morning and decide I'm going to be a good person. That's a miracle that has to happen in our hearts and our minds. But God answers our prayers and causes us to grow in righteousness. And we don't have God's light just simply because we have his image. We were all created in his image. Everybody can say I'm a child of the creator. But we, we get his light because we pray for it. We get his light because we turn from sin. We recognize that we had a sinful life and we turn to God through Jesus Christ, asking for his forgiveness. And by a work of the Holy Spirit, he places his spirit on us. I don't understand how that fully makes sense, but we can say he comes into us, he renews us, he wakes us up so that we want to be good. And when we start to want to be, be good, we start acting like our Father, who is good. So we start wanting to do things like studying God's word and we learn to follow Jesus and he helps us to walk in his light and clarify what is right and wrong and good and bad right in our immediate communities. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your school. And when we're doing that, if we're going to be on this ministry, we should be talking with the people at our schools and and on your work teams and and your friends about uh, the theological and moral issues that scripture specifically addresses. So things like the clarity over gender. Scripture is very clear on that. I know our city's confused, but Scripture is not. God, God knows what he made. He knows what he made. Um, we should be talking to people about uh, the respect for, uh, for human life, how much God values it. We should be talking to people about the respect for institutional authority. We should be talking to people about the sacred aspect of our sexual experience. We should be talking to people about the redemptive aspect of, of justice and truth and fair representation in our legal system. These are all things that we find in Scripture, and there's more. It's God's Word that adds light to these conversations, and we are the ones that are supposed to know God's Word, so we should be speaking to people about what we know. We should be representing Jesus Christ, and therefore representing His Father, imitating the standard of morality that God is. For people in our city when we get a chance to talk about these things. Not with pride, not with hatred, but with love. And here's the important thing. Our credibility out there demands our integrity in here. That's why we can't lower the nets. That's why we have to hold the bar high. And if we're going to talk about the light, We must be people that are walking in the light. Amen? Amen. The last one to talk about then is the power in Jesus' name that is revealed to a city when the church imitates God by walking in wisdom. By walking in wisdom. And and maybe maybe it's not clear to everybody else, but this, this 
this word walk, it's really a, a concept of what it is to just have a life. The idea that you're moving around, living. So when I'm saying walking, like we say one of our three W's is walking, we're talking about the way we live. And I hope that's super clear to everybody else. But if it wasn't, now I've tried to make it. So we could say living in wisdom, living in the light, living in love. But we're walking in wisdom right from this uh, passage. So I'm going to say that what does that look like? This imitation of God looks like, here's a big word, circumspection. Anybody ever heard that word before? No. You've heard circumference and you've heard inspection, right? Right? Who has a dog? I have a dog. I get to say this finally. I have a dog, right? My dog does a little ritual of circumspection before he goes to sleep. Okay? Now you know what I'm talking about, right? My dog, he'll go to find a spot where he wants to lie down, and before he lies down, he has to do something three times. Right? He's going to sniff the whole thing out and figure it out if this is the right spot. And if it's not, he's going to find a different spot. Right? He, he does a little circle check. Circumspection. And it's what we did just before we, we examined ourselves, before we took the cup. It's a, it's a moment in our lives where we are going to check ourselves out to see if we have the characteristics of Christ present in us or not. If we're being wise or not. Are we being wise or foolish? So we want to take a second to, to check ourselves out. Like you might do before you get in your car in the morning. Or you might do when you're checking out your property in the spring. Just take a, a circle check of your life. Walking wisely requires us to think about how we spend our days, how we use our time, how you and I are making the best use of the time, the scripture says. So that's what we want to do for a few moments before we close. How how are we using our time? How do people get up to using their time in the city? So Paul pulls this interesting example. He talks about one of the ways that people were foolishly wasting their time as he talks about drunkenness. He talks about drunkenness. And as I, as we, where we are and, and, and where we live, of course, drunkenness is the main thing. But given where we are and, and where we live and what we can smell, being high is a thing too. That happens around here. So in a city, we have drunkenness and we have, we have people that can be high. So we've got to discuss those things. And you could be foolishly wasting your time, drunk or high, versus wisely redeeming the time by yielding the Spirit. That's the contrast in this last section. It's very clear. And as I said, maybe drunkenness is not your thing. I don't know if in Paul's day people would come to church drunk, but that can happen. It certainly has happened here. People come hungover, and it's okay. They have a spot here. We love them. They're in, they're in church. But, but it's, it's not a great way to spend your time. It's, a, it's actually a way to squander it. And, and we can do that in so many ways. And it's all chasing after pleasures that ultimately alter our thinking. And when we do that, we, we first must disconnect from God and the manifesto of the church, and that's the problem. If you're out there pursuing a high of some sort, you're not pursuing imitation of God. You're not pursuing connection with your church. So here's the concern. Paul says it leads to debauchery. I had to look up that word, but basically it meant everything on the list that we're supposed to be avoiding. It's a summary word for all these deeds of darkness that we're meant to leave behind. And so I was trying to think of a context in where we could really say this because I, I'm, I'm so hopeful that most of us have left that behind. You're thinking, well, this doesn't seem like it applies. But what could Paul be talking about? And I confirm this. Uh, there's, there's, there's a scene, an underground scene, and I think it's in every city, but one of the places where it happens in, in, in kind of the most um, notorious way is L.A. It's a big city. And, and the L.A. has an underground party scene. And it's, and it's about 
hard drugs and partying and, and hooking up with people and, and freedom and just being who you're meant to be and a wild night out. And certainly, certainly, if we don't understand anything else from Scripture, we should understand that there's, not, there's a huge difference between that kind of lifestyle and what God wants for us in here. Amen? Amen. Right. I, I think everybody should be on that page. If you're not, we're going to have grace for you. But you, that would be the, that'd be, you're so far off if you think that's what God has called you to. He's called you from that. So we've left that behind. But, but as we get past a certain age in our Christian life, we become more refined. We become casual and, and cavalier about wasting time. It becomes more civilized, individualized. We do it a little bit more isolated. But it's still just as mind-consuming and mind-numbing with our material things that we crave. So we could still be doing this. It's maybe not hard partying, but we could still be checking out, wasting time. Why is it so bad? It's so bad because we've been empowered for exactly the opposite kind of lifestyle. The Holy Spirit wants us to be busy with righteous behavior that builds others up and testifies to the presence of Christ in our lives. Not just out there, but especially in here when we're together. So imagine this scenario. It's, you've, you've waited for your family reunion. You've been waiting for a long time to see your favorite uncle or aunt, or whoever it is, and you get to that family reunion, and everything's good, and, and you get up close to your, your uncle or your aunt, and you sit down with them, and you realize they've been drinking way too much. And now when you sit beside them, they've got nothing for you except for moans and groans. Ugh. Ugh. And you wanted to talk with them. You wanted to reminisce with them about life. You wanted to learn some things from them, and they're unavailable to you because they've spent their time at the party boozing it up. Does anybody even say that? <laughs> I just said it, so it's got to be a thing. <laughs> Trending on Twitter this week. Um, right? They're there. You're sitting beside them going like, this is a waste of my time now. They've got nothing to share with me. There's no light coming off their life. There's no edification for me. There's no love. There's no sharing of anything happening. So that's one way it could go, go bad. But here's another scenario. You get to church, and you're waiting to see someone that you know spends their time deeply invested in understanding God's will. They're people that pray, they're people that serve, they're doing this stuff, and you just want to have a few minutes with them, and in those few minutes, they're able to share with you something that blesses your heart in such a way that it lifts you up throughout the whole week. You're thinking, I've never forgotten what that person has said to me, because they've been tuned in the Spirit, and they've ministered to your soul, they understood your pain or your situation, and they had a word for you, or they had a, a moment for you, and it blessed you as ministry, because they'd been spending their time yielding to the Spirit. And they help us to know what it means and what it feels like ourselves to be filled with the Spirit. As opposed to be drunk. There are things that affect us. But being filled with the Spirit is a high of a very different sort. So Paul writes to us about redeeming the time by boasting about God and by building each other up. Rather than wasting the time with foolish talk and drunkenness and, and the things that we might end up doing. Things like fighting or quarreling with each other. James put those out when he wrote his letter. He said, you spend your time arguing and, and fighting and it should not be like this. So let me ask you, as, as you spend your time with Christians, what's the focus of your conversations? What do you end up talking about? Do you end up just running your mouth about the latest things? Or do you, do you have conversations with other believers in this church that bless you, that enrich you, that, that lift them up, that, that suspend them throughout the week? Are you able to do that? We can engage in these situations that alter our moods, that changes how we think, 
and they help us to feel fun. Paul's not saying there's none of that, but he has a different way of which we come about it. He actually says at the end of this that, that we can get to this by singing, by rejoicing, by, by thanksgiving, by, by the way we celebrate God together. And this morning, as I heard us singing together, I realized it's true. We felt that this morning, right? I heard Jordan say, come on, church. And I heard the church sing louder. And it just kept getting louder in this room as we went. And that's fun. That's good. That changes the way we think. That changes the way we feel. That allows us to feel filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing and making music together in in thankfulness is advocated precisely because it lifts the maturity of the whole body of Christ. So we're often encouraged to sing with believers, even the most basic songs of faith. This excites my soul and reminds me that salvation is not just about me. It's about the church, and it's for a city. I love it when we go to conferences or concerts together. I love being in a room every Sunday and and getting a chance to sing. In fact, it doesn't feel like church to me until we sing sometimes. I love preaching too. But I think you guys like singing. I think you guys really like singing. Which is really good because we're going to get to sing one more time before we leave today. But before I do that, let me just say this. This is the manifesto. This is Jesus' manifesto. He wants us to be imitators of God like he spent his life doing. And so we have this written outline of the way we've been called to live. Not just called, but awakened. Awakened. Those lines that say, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Those are suspected to be lines from an early Christian hymn. Simple things that the people knew because they sung them. It was truth that they could focus on. And Paul pulled it out, and now it's in our scriptures to be remembered. So Paul tells us to wake up. Stop sleeping in the darkness as though we are dead. Stop pulling down the nets. Christ will shine on us. And we will be seen as his community in this city. So let me ask you, are you awake? Are you walking in wisdom? Are you walking in the light? Are you walking in love? Are you someone who's just maybe going to church? And, or are you being the church? What's the difference? If you're just going to church, then when we give the benediction today, your service to God is over. You've sat under the word, you've sung the songs, and now you can go home, you can go back to where you work, and you'll do this all again seven days from now, but in between, you will reveal God to absolutely no one. You won't spend any time imitating him. But if imitating God is your manifesto, your service to God never stops at the benediction. And in fact, the benediction is where your life becomes a lot more interesting. Because you're being released into the city now to imitate God and watch other people come alive through the same power that is at work in your life. So following Paul's lead, as he led us at the end of this passage, after I pray, we're going to sing a song. Not to close the service. We're going to sing a song like we're opening the service. And I want the service, the next service we go into, to last seven days. All the way from right now until the time we come over and we'll start a new one that goes another week long. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we're not going to sing a slow song to finish today. We're going to sing a, a number one. Right? Amen? The band's coming. Let me pray for you. Father, I just want to thank you for the way you direct us in your word. And Paul said so much. He's written so much that is encouraging to the church. And I feel like almost anywhere we turn in Ephesians, we can be challenged. By what, by what the scriptures say. 
And so, God, I hope we have been. And I, I pray, Lord, that as we begin this week, that we would not be shutting down the service to you, but that we'd be ramping up. God, that we would take our opportunity to be your imitators, to go out and, and be light and to be wise and to be loving right in the context of where you've placed us and know that you've placed your power in that, power that will encourage our church and bless our city. Lord, awaken us to live for you. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.